From KIOS in Omaha, you're listening to Riverside Chats. I'm Tom Noblock, and today I'm talking with comedian and musician Tim Heidecker. We're talking about comedy, the media landscape, and bundling artifice with authenticity in his new tour, appropriately titled The Two Tims, which you can see at the Admiral on August 23rd. I will still have ideas that are satirical and comedic and, and meant to reflect how I see the world and how and make comedy in to say it in a simpler way <laughs> but the, I don't want that to be all I'm about and I think that's a, that becomes a very um, narrow uh, way to live and I, I mean I could live my private life that way too but you just don't want to be just entirely detached and too cool for school and think everything is a big joke stay tuned for the conversation after this break Welcome to Riverside Chats. I'm Tom Noblock. If you've ever had Adult Swim on at night and wondered what in the world you're watching, there's a good chance you've seen something created by Tim Heidecker. He got his start making bizarre sketch series like Tim and Eric's Awesome Show, Tom Goes to the Mayor, and On Cinema. Since then, he's appeared in several movies such as Us, Bridesmaids, and The Comedy. And he's extended his On Cinema universe into the film Mr. America and a new subscription service called The High Network. His latest turn in a multifaceted career is to a live tour, but maybe not quite the way you'd expect. Half of his show has him in character as a bumbling, awkward comedian failing to connect with the audience. Then the rest of the show is genuine, authentic music written by Heidecker and performed with his very good band. Today, we're talking about artifice and authenticity, how he harnesses both, and the decision to bundle them in his Two Tims tour, which you can see at the Admiral on August 23rd. This interview was recorded before the start of the Screen Actors Guild strike. Here is our conversation. So I'll start off with a little preface, which is I've been a fan for a long time, so I will do my best not to Chris Farley my way through this giggling at your answers. (laughs) Thank Um, you. (laughs) That's nice. Nice to hear. So um, Americans like to think of our signature archetype as this brave cowboy rebel, you know, forging a path of individualism and self-reliance. And, you know, maybe there was a time when that was a thing. But I've loved how so much of your career is focused instead on what I think is a way more prevalent archetype for us, which is the image-obsessed grifter. Um, and uh-huh. specifically how these grifters, you know, oftentimes when they're portrayed, they're like in an Oscar winning movie, they're the noble hustler, or at least they have some kind of emotionally complex genius to them. And for you, often even playing yourself, it's sort of like this, you, you lean into the pathetic and shallow elements, even when there's some success that's achieved. So I wonder, how did, how did you come across this type of character? How did, how did you first become aware of them in society? Oh, well, that's that's a great question. I don't think I've ever really been asked it that way. Um, I mean, I grew up watching, te- you know, uh, infomercials and uh, televangelists and, you know, politicians and, you know, a whole generation of um, a, a style of, present- of presentation that was... Uh, you know, nakedly, uh, exploitive, I think, and obvious to me and my, my dad, particularly who had a very, uh, my dad who still does very skeptical, sort of almost verging into cynical, uh, perspective on, on just about everything. So I think I was just kind of raised with a very attuned, uh, sense of, uh, you know, hucksterism and flim flammery. Um, (laughs) So I think it starts there, and then um, sort of the meta postmodern idea of uh, you know like maybe starting with with like David Byrne and the Talking Heads and and that kind of idea of like all of this is phony, and anytime you're presenting yourself as an entertainer or as a there you know or or, or trying to impressed people there's a sort of uh plastic quality to that or there's sort of an inauthentic quality to that and it's funny and interesting to to like be over the top with it i guess um and so even in tim and eric stuff there's this you know sort of ironic uh level of presentation to everything we do that's usually like over the top or overly overly you know insincere and and just making fun of the idea of 
entertainment itself. Well, and your dad worked at a car dealership, right? He did, yes. Did you learn some tricks from the the car trade that spilled over into this world too? I think a little more of just that the um, the personality of a car salesman, and, and there just there's a there's a lot of characters there. There are a lot of um, just ridiculous personas that you could draw from that my dad wasn't really like, and I, did, I think my dad didn't uh didn't associate himself he always felt like out of place in that world he didn't necessarily like it it was kind of thrust on him and um but saw the silliness of uh the different techniques some of these old timers would use to to try to sell a car well i i love uh in mr america where you kind of bring all of this to a very specific and pointed uh approach where it's the campaign movie where your fictionalized self is running for district attorney of San Bernardino despite not living there or having any kind of law related credentials and i remember watching that I mean, it came out in this time where there was kind of a lot of chaos and uh, the beginning of our era of a lot of uncertainty around the American political system. And specifically, I found a kind of catharsis when your character doesn't win in the end, which it never made sense that he could win. But America had conditioned me to sort of expect that, you know, maybe this guy might fail his way all the way to the top. I don't know. (laughs) Was was any of that on your mind when you were putting that together? Yeah, I think we uh, always try to keep – the satire we do and the the whatever it is we're working on try to keep it grounded in some level of believability or reality and it did seem a bridge too far to to have some kind of success i mean there's a there's another way to tell that story where it's a darker version of america where he does win you know and that that almost feels just it felt too hard to swallow that be too hard to believe and too kind of um you know preachy almost so it's we're less like satire is sort of secondary it's sort of more like the the human pain of these characters is kind of more interesting to us and there's satire in there and sort of a a reflection of uh you know the current state of the world but um it's we're more interested in like the the pathetic human qualities of these characters uh and watch and watching failure happen um and so having him win is never i mean there's sort of like he's always winning because he's not losing you know like he does lose that race but he's he's like still in the arena of light of like you know <laughs> he, he doesn't get fully that character doesn't get fully um ruined ever he always kind of comes back so you know even in in like a losing a, an election it, it it's almost you know it's a little bit like Trump. It's like he lost, but he's not going away. Like that kind of idea. Well, it's like he doesn't ever really learn a lesson from any of it, right? Right. Yes, exactly. <laughs> well, it, uh, I, I think in in the difference between your, your Tim and Eric stuff when you're working with Eric Wareheim and then when you're not, it seems like there's a little bit more of a pointed satire when you don't have Eric there, whereas with Eric, it's a little bit more broadly absurd. Do you think that's fair? I do. I do. I think. Um, I think early on we were I mean, I think there's a lot of satire and parody in Tim and Eric that is maybe more bro- not as pointed and not as um, specific uh, to politics, for sure. I mean, I think we definitely stayed away from that uh, intentionally, um, not not really out of um, any kind of like, you know, uh fear of of alienating people or anything, but more just felt that other people did it better. It wasn't really something we were interested in together to do. And um, and so, yeah, my own work, that's I guess it's a little more of my own personal interest and uh, fascination with with that side of uh, with with that w- world. And um, but I think in Tim and Eric, there's a broad um, satire of, you know, capitalism and American um, consumerism and uh, going back to telemarketer or um you know uh infomercials and and cheap crap that gets hoisted upon us hoisted or foisted hoisted Hoisted? Hoisted, yeah yeah um so i think there's definitely a point there's clearly uh, i think a point of view about the world there that isn't that different from what i do without eric but um yeah at the time it was 
we wanted definitely wanted to keep the show away from current events and and have a sort of you know try to hang on to a longer shelf life for it uh by not talking about what was happening in the world at that moment well because you were you were coming uh into the entertainment industry around the time when it was very popular to be doing current event shows right like that was around the time that the daily show was getting really big and yes. Colbert. Colbert, uh, yeah. And so now it seems like there's a less of a clear idea of how you deal with politics in entertainment, right? I mean, there's the big question of did the did the John Stewart revolution really accomplish anything and uh you know, it seems like your your work especially uh you know, now deals with politics a little bit, but it's it, it's almost like people are grappling with having to uh process our political system, which is absurd, through comedy, but it's not clear how to do that in a way that does anything other than maybe be snarky or maybe make a point. And we yeah. were in such a fractured world. How, how do you deal with politics and entertainment is a question that's only gotten murkier, right? Yeah. I mean, the only time I deal with it, I mean, I deal with it on Twitter. I used to, at least. I don't really engage there anymore. But um, on Office Hours, the live morning podcast that we do um it comes up and but and sometimes i get preachy i you know it's a live show where i get to sort of be a little bit closer to myself and and talk talk about what i care about and the, you know but then there's just like an there's ridiculous absurd things that happen every week that is fun to talk about with your friends and it's the the vibe is meant to be like you know, if I was if I was hanging out with my real friends who are Doug and Vic, who I'm on the show with, like, what would we talk about? And a lot of times you can't not talk about, you know, what Trump said or what gaffe Biden made or something. So I don't like intentionally steer away from it. But, you know, it's definitely not the kind of show where I there's a lot of these shows where it's guys on a microphone, you know, complaining about stuff. And um, that's not what we're trying to do. But I'm not going to ignore, you know, the absurdity of the moment uh, to protect us from attacks from people. You know, uh, we're definitely in a place where it's hard to satirize things. And I think the things we look to satirize are way more specific and maybe not apparent and right in front of us all the time. So on, on cinema, which I think is more where, where you're thinking, is the show where we might find a part of American culture that might not be obviously absurd at the moment, but is veering towards absurdity. And uh, and in fact, I just came from a writing meeting with Eric Natornicola and Greg about the next season. And, you know, we, I stumbled on some dark part of the internet that I don't know how many people are aware of. I mean, it's fairly popular. I don't want to say what it is, but I said, this is something I want to, drill into you guys and they're like yeah this is ridiculous i can't believe this you know and and maybe it won't seem all that ridiculous to to other people but it does to us if you're just joining us i'm talking with tim heidecker who will be performing his two tims live show at the admiral on august 23rd what's on your mind this week join the conversation on social media or call in with a brief voicemail to 402-881-0089 which we may play in one of our upcoming shows yeah, on cinema is one of my favorite things. You know, I'm I'm a dork who uh, I would stay up at night uh, in Nebraska. Our PBS station would play Ebert at midnight on I don't know Friday or Saturday. I would stay up to watch that, and you know, I remember occasionally I'd have I'd be with friends, we'd be hanging out. I'd say, oh, you know, shut up, let's watch Ebert for a second, and they're probably wondering why my friends <laughs> just with this Ebert. Guy. Well, you know, it was like at that time I was mainly watching it Ebert and Roper, and then. Uh, I don't know, there would occasionally be guest hosts, right, because Ebert had health issues. I think I just called it Ebert, maybe. But so, anyway, I started with that because I would watch it, and I just started off being a movie buff, and I was excited about the movies. And then YouTube opened up uh, the archives, and you could see all this drama with him and Siskel, which at some point I realized that, I, you know, I like the insights about movies. It's interesting. But watching these two guys be hostile with each other is much more of the appeal at a certain point because you kind of get over the movies uh, and just the idea of two guys who don't really respect each other or don't really want to be in a room together but have to be is so fun and I would guess that that's partially right. how On Cinema came about. Is that Does that come from your relationship watching Ebert? Yeah. Um, I, I, I guess so. I certainly grew up with those shows and uh, thinking that they mattered 
for a little while. And then, you know, I, I remember this moment when Roger Ebert himself wrote a review for Tim and Eric's Billion Dollar Movie. And I suggest people go look it up because he hated it. And <laughs> it might be one of the last reviews he ever wrote. And there is a sense in the review that he's kind of given up on trying to, A, figure out this movie. And there's almost a sense of like, what am I doing? What have I done with my life? <laughs> and it was weird because I had like recently kind of enjoyed him before that because I written this review of... um of a movie uh, that I'm going to blank on right now, but you could probably rem remind me of what it is because it was uh, Terrence Malick's last movie. Tree of Life. Tree of, thank you. It was Tree of Life. And I loved that movie. And I thought Roger Ebert wrote a really nice review of it and helped me understand why I loved it. So I do think there is value in, in writing about art, you know, but then I read his review of our movie and <laughs> Uh, was a you know was a hurt by it, but then I talked to my dad again. Going back to my dad being very skeptical and cynical of of many things, and he couldn't believe that I cared. He was like, "Who cares what he thinks?" You know, like, what does that have to do with anything? Uh, and that kind of brought me down to earth, and it re reminded me that it is a little silly, um, and. And that may, be, may have been in the back of my head as we went into doing on cinema. But, you know, I just love Greg and we have this, you know, as I do with a lot of people that I've kind of figured out, I've, I enjoy collaboration. I enjoy playing off other people. And I've obviously have a different comedic relationship with Eric than I do with Greg, but they both, but they both work. And, uh, you know, I've been, I had John Early on Office Hours yesterday, and that's a different comic energy and relationship that has its own rules and everything. And it, it's just, I'm very grateful to be able to kind of, I don't have to be this one kind of comedy guy. <laughs> you know, I could play, play in different ways with different people. And um, it's really just a joy. You're making me think that Ebert struggled with absurd humor. I think a lot of the time yeah. he, he, he just, I don't know, something about it didn't click for him. I think about, uh, I love that movie Clifford, you know, Martin Short, oh, Charles yeah. Grodin. And sure. I think he gave it like half a star. And you know, yeah. it's, it's similar to your reaction or what you were describing about him reacting to just kind of like giving up. And you get the sense that when he watched Clifford, he sort of was like, I don't know about humanity anymore. Uh, yeah. Yeah. It didn't <laughs> seem like the, the most fun guy to hang out with maybe. Well, it's interesting. I mean, I, I know. I think it's probably true of a lot of critics that there's something about absurdity and humor. If they can see it as being smart, it's like they can let themselves lock into it and accept it. And if it's very just goofy and silly or intentionally dumb, that there's something that uh, feels like they can't totally validate it. And I don't really know why that would be. Yeah. Well, I, you know, I think um, I remember years ago, Bob Odenkirk, who was our, our kind of our, the guy that, found Eric and I and and was really our mentor for a long time and um you know we when our first stuff first came out there was uh it was very polarizing as it still is and but you know it was new to us and it was like all right wow these people really have a visceral reaction to our work and they really they're really mad about it you know and I think Bob's perspective was you know this is very singular to comedy because I think when people don't get the joke or they don't find something funny, they take personal offense to it often. They're, they're like, this must mean the joke is on me, you know, or they just get, they take it very personally. And <laughs> uh, I haven't really felt that way. I mean, there's certain comedy I really don't like, of course, and we all have our preferences, but um, I think that's maybe where Ebert might fall into that category a little bit of like, there's something deep. There's if, if you if you're laughing at this and I'm not like I know right away. Like I've, I've you've we've all been in that that feeling of being in a room where everyone's laughing and you're not, and there's a deep insecurity feeling going on there. Um. So yeah, I mean he's dead though, so who cares? <laughs> Well, so you've talked about how you like to uh, work with people who bring out different elements in you, and you've done a lot of different types of media within entertainment. And the, the Two Tims is the name of your tour. So, I mean, the, the 
Tim Heidecker alter ego is very different from you. You're very self-aware. You have all these talents. You're able to sort of branch off into different things. But then when you play this other version of yourself who has your name, he's just this biggest, the biggest buffoon imaginable. He's almost an impressively bad actor. You know, he's on trial for murder sometimes. And I, I mm-hmm. love one of my favorite things about the new seasons of On Cinema is how you'll find some new way to look as unflattering as possible. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, so why create this fictional Tim Heidecker who is named Tim Heidecker instead of, you know, like an Alan Partridge alter ego? Well, yeah, I mean, uh, I think in in hindsight, it might have been a better idea to do, to come up with a couple of different names for these people. Um, but it is what it is. I think, and I, I mean, I, I'm not, I, I I think ultimately there's something interesting about, you know, I come from like kind of the Andy Kaufman school of, of intentional confusion and multiple personas and um, really being interested in that idea of never really knowing where someone's coming from and, and making that part of the journey of appreciating their work, I guess. Um, sounds quite public radio radio <laughs> the way i said it there but it's perfect for the, exactly. for the yeah. circumstances we're in um so that's where it comes from really it's not that complicated i guess it's um for a while that was really only really the only way i presented myself was in in various characters that just were under my name because there's also something back to that sort of meta um postmodern ironic idea of entertainment is like phony character names is just another it's like a unnecessary step in the process you know (laughs) like uh eric and i began by kind of having these personas of tim and eric and they certainly weren't us at all but um it was kind of just like we're not gonna like like it's almost like too old timey to have goofy character names you know (laughs) um and yeah, so it, it's all, it's all that. And then, you know, as I got older and hit my forties and started being less interested in only existing in character form, um, and finding social media and, uh, office hours and my music, it was like sort of, oh, well I can, I could sort of be closer to who I am, but that, that becomes another character almost, you know? I'm talking with Tim Heidecker, comedian, actor, and now singer-songwriter. His new show, The Two Tims Tour, bundles intentionally awkward comedy with soulful music, and you can see his Omaha performance on August 23rd at The Admiral. Follow Riverside Chats on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, and stay tuned for the rest of the conversation after this break. And welcome back to Riverside Chats. I'm Tom Noblock. You can find the backlog of all of our episodes wherever you get podcasts. And while you're there, we'd love it if you gave us a review. Today I'm talking with Tim Heidecker about his career and his latest live show, what he's calling the Two Tims Tour. Half of the show has him in character as a bumbling, awkward comedian, and the rest of the show is genuine, authentic music written by Heidecker and performed with his very good band. We're talking about artifice, authenticity, and how he bundled both in the Two Tims Tour, which you can see at the Admiral on August 23rd. Tickets are available now, and here's the rest of our conversation. I think it's interesting how you're merging uh, artifice with authenticity in the new show, right? The two Tims is you're going as far into fake Tim, but then bringing this very authentic, soulful musician at the same yeah. time. Uh, and it, it's counterintuitive to put those together. How did, how did you come to that idea? Well, I think there's a limit uh, to our tolerance for irony uh and satire i think there's an exhaustion point that you you know and i I give a lot of credit to my audience who you know i find generally smart and aware of what the joke is what the joke's supposed to be what's funny about it and and knowing that like you're you're all adults and you can you know that this isn't really me and that I have other interests and I have other ambitions and you can like both of those things. And so, you know, I wanted to do a tour 
uh, of my comedy. I wanted to do a tour of my music. When you do a, a you put a big tour together, it's it's a lot of work to get it together to a place where you can go off and do it, and it ends up eating up a lot of your year. And you have to really commit to it. You know, you just really have to say, all right, I'm doing this, and I have to decide to do it well in advance of when you do it. <laughs> you know, so, uh, so. I, I just thought, well, I can open up for myself and uh, kind of satisfy these two parts of my brain um, and hopefully the audience's brain and and make an, you know, a night of uh, laughter and tears, you know, or not tears. There's, there's a couple of sad songs, I'll tell you. Um, but it, it's it worked out really well, and I think there is this... Um, apprehension at first with the music because people are still maybe a little some i mean it's i'm i'm educating my audience to know like you don't have to like not everything i do is going to be you know tongue-in-cheek and and that um can be uncomfortable for the audience at first but then you know it, the music is really good the band is great and there's a sense of okay i've you know the audience transitions along with me and kind of just lets and just kind of relaxes and says, all right, this is just, this is a show like any other show. Um, and I don't also, I don't um, make myself not funny for the second half of the show and the music, you know, I don't, I don't suddenly become a mopey indie rocker uh, bore, you know, like I, I want to just make people feel relaxed and you know i'm vic burgers on stage with me and we're joking around and um it's you know i guess like what i'm learning from doing this is like i'm a little i'm trying to break break the chains of genre a little bit and like say don't worry about what this is you know you just try to take it for what it is and uh, not worry about where you're going to file it in your you know in your uh, on your a bookshelf or your in your record collection like it's just stuff it's just stuff i'm making and i get that and i and i i'm giving you a permission to you know i i trust that you can receive it the way i want it to be received <laughs> was there an iteration of the comedy portion where it was more of the actual you the self-aware you as opposed to the character uh kind of satirizing this wave of comics in their current political moment i think if you look at like the very beginning of that character i mean i the, you can, on youtube you could see the first time i did it um you know on my youtube channel buried deep down there it's like it was done as a stunt and it was done as kind of a reaction to bad open mic comics that I would see. And um, it was it's way more me and it's way more uh, like let way less uh, secure and, you know, way less confident about the material and way more kind of stuttery and fumbling and, you know, not confident in the material or in or in being on stage. And as I did it over years, the character has become way more cocky and confident and, you know, strutting around like he thinks he's, uh, you know, Jerry Seinfeld or he's like a great comic. Um, so that's where the changes and, and that's way more of an intentional character choice and probably, you know, informed by Trump and that kind of swagger and that kind of idiotic confidence that he has um on stage so uh it's definitely far removed from me but it, it's also very cathartic to do that character it's very fun to be a total ass and and a abuse abusive person on stage for <laughs> 20 minutes 30 minutes you know um so i get a lot of satisfaction out of doing it but uh, i wouldn't I would never act that way in my in my life, in my real life to anybody, I don't think. <laughs> well, but I mean, was there a time then though where you would go out or is there a, maybe a desire to someday keep the kind of funny authenticity of the musical portion and then to present the stand-up part maybe closer to office hours you where you yeah. are, you know. It's Yeah, you know, I I I've I've recently dipped my toes in that in here in Los Angeles there's a lot of um 
you know, friendly shows that I can just kind of go up and do 10, 20 minutes and try some stuff. And so the past, I don't know, month or so, I've done that a couple times where I didn't feel like uh, getting into that character and, um, and, and, you know, doing that character is fairly limiting. You know, there's only, there's a, there's certain borders and, and there's a structure to it, to doing that character that, that limits a lot of what I can do. Same with like Tim and Eric stuff or anything I do or on cinema, there's like, you know, there's a world that where that character exists and to go outside of it kind of ruins the character or is untrue to the character. And, uh, and sort of like with the music, there's things where I'm on office hours where I can do, you know, bad impressions or talk about the Beatles or do things about, you know, things that interest me outside of the things that would interest those characters. (laughs) And, um, so I did it a few times and I mean, it's way more nerve wracking to do that than to go up and, and intentionally bomb under the mask of a character in a costume, you know? Mm-hmm. So it was a little intimidating, but then it was really fun. And it was like, Oh wait, this is a whole other thing I could do, which um, is exciting to me. And uh, that's been my career. I think has been like getting to a place and not getting bored of something, but feeling like it's kind of at its, you know, it's uh, momentum is slowing. And then there's something else that is exciting to try that might not work right away that I can work on and try and, and try to do better. And then I do that for a while. And then the momentum slows on that. <laughs> it's a, so I'm like constantly like getting distracted by the shiny object over there and running towards it a little bit. Um, and maybe that's a disastrous way to live, but it makes me, you know, excited to keep making things, I think. Um, so who knows, maybe, you know, the next time I, you know, th- this summer it's, it's no more BS. I know I'm on public radio. We can and bleep it. If you, if you want to say the whole word, it's fine. No, I, no, I like BS. It's pathetic. <laughs> um, and, but, you know, I see like, oh, this would be fun to do a little tour where it's like, you know, it's a little more, uh, I can um, just try other things. You know, I was watching um, Steve Martin from like his first stand up special, and which is really great. It's on YouTube, but it's, it's him at the Troubadour in Los Angeles. And um, yeah, maybe a hundred people in the audience or something. And, it was so great and it reminded me of another kind of way to present comedy, you know, that I hadn't really thought about in a while. And um, I'm not going to come out with a banjo or anything, but, you know, it's just like being open to to uh, trying new things and pushing, you know, the limits of what I think I can do is always on the back of my mind. And I hope I keep doing that. I remember uh, watching the episode of Decker where you sing Our Values Are Under Attack and uh, being impressed that even this bad actor version of you can actually carry a tune pretty well. Um, and so like Threat on Cinema, you're kind of repeatedly making these jokes about your version of yourself wanting to be this cool guy with the band and not doing it that well. Yeah. While, while the real you is doing it and doing it fairly seriously and you know having a real craft, being able to sing and you know, not, without all the the – the image stuff that fake you gets obsessed with that tends to take him down. But I, I wonder, is it difficult or was it a difficult process for you to develop your voice as an actual authentic singer songwriter instead of the characters spilling over or your comedy instincts kind of influencing it? Yeah, it is. I mean, I, I it's another narrow lane that I try to, um, that I have to keep in check. And there's a lot of, um, you know, uh, failure in there too there's a lot of like try and try and try again and um write songs i'm like yeah that's i I worked on finishing a record right now and one of the songs i was like this is just too i don't know power ballad rock dakar verging on dakar you know which is the (laughs) fake band and on cinema and you know you just have to it's all editing you know it's all like I always say like the stuff that, that anybody ever sees is what I feel very confident to put out and to, and I feel like this is what I was going for. And there's a lot of stuff that ends up, you know, on the cutting room floor. Um, and 
so yeah i get it's i'm very self-conscious of like not trying to just trying to be my in that world just trying to be myself and not trying to put on an affect of you know a rock singer i guess even though i can do that you know i can i'm a passable rock singer <laughs> like i can do that thing it's fun to do that thing but like when i'm singing a song that's coming from my heart it's you know i try to just do do the best i can and the songs i write fall into this kind of you know randy newman warren zevon uh delany kind of thing that i also can i just try not to do a character you know when i sing those kind of songs try to sing like the way i sound which i don't really like to listen to you know i think that's it, it's a little too naked um for me uh personally to listen because i think that that's you know we all no one likes to hear their own voice which i so i won't be listening to this interview uh, i hate to say <laughs> I get that feeling. But, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um well it's it's like a it seems like a lot of the the current project for you then is learning to be yourself, to be authentic, to be naked uh publicly, so to speak. Um and yes. I, is that something that makes you I mean, does it feel healthier to you? Because we we live in a time where everyone is very obsessed with image. And I don't know if it's because you guys were starting off during maybe like peak irony. Um, and then maybe that is leveling off or is it more of a, a personal project for you? Uh, yeah, I think it's just a, first of all, I think, I mean, I keep talking about irony and like, I don't know, we always have like, it's a very broad word, I think these days, but I think we all know what we mean. Um, I do think it's kind of a, it's a young, younger man's game. And I mean, you, you can't be like there's i still like i still want to i I will still have ideas that are satirical and comedic and and meant to reflect how i see the world and how and make comedy in to say it in a simpler way <laughs> but the, i don't want that to be all i'm about and i think that's a, it becomes a very um narrow uh way to live and i i mean i could live my private life that way too but you just don't want to be just entirely detached and too cool for school and think everything is a big joke. But I love, I say it on my show all the time. I love to laugh and I love to have fun. I love, and I, it's part of my, it's who I am is, you know, I'm not being very funny uh, during our conversation. Right. But uh, I, it's my, it's my almost, it's like, it, it's more work for me. And I hate, I mean, Funny is very subjective, but uh, it, my, my natural instinct is to at least try to be funny or like, you know, play to the people I'm talking to in an amusing way. But um, so it's just trying to balance that, I guess, and try to not not make that my entire uh, identity. So when you've got a feeling or an idea, there are certain things that comedy is. I've got a feeling. <laughs> There you go. Make me laugh now. Beatles, Beatles reference. Yeah. <laughs> um, when you when you have an idea or a feeling, uh, and you, you're trying to find the right medium to express it, um, there are things that comedy is probably the right venue for, and there's ones where maybe a song is the only way for you to sort of scratch whatever itch it is that you're having. So, how do you decide what a song needs to be? What can you express through song that comedy can't get to? Oh boy, um, I, I think they can get to this. The, um, I don't know. I think um, music the songs come from, I think, a more subliminal place. I mean, they both come from subliminal places. Um, they're just they're just different. I don't know if I have a great answer for you. I could bullshit through an answer. Um, you know, you don't have to. I, I think. Well, no. Yeah, I don't have to. Uh, when, when I, I think it's interesting to think about i just don't know if there's a great answer for it i think um the comedy ideas um god i mean they both come out of nowhere you know i wish i could just i wish i had a formula for generating them i think when an idea comes it'll come as a song or a, or a, a melody or a you know a kind of song i want to write and then i'll try to do the best version of that and same with a, a, a you know 
I mean, I guess comedy might be a little more reactive to something I see or hear or talk about. Um, so, uh, but sometimes stuff comes up, you know, as I'm trying to go to sleep at night and I think of an angle on something and uh, try my best to capture it the best way I can and see it through. If you're just joining us, I'm talking with Tim Heidecker, who will be performing his Two Tims live show at the Admiral on August 23rd. What's on your mind this week? Join the conversation on social media or call in with a brief voicemail to 402-881-0089, which we may play in one of our upcoming shows. I think about, a, a to use one of your songs, something like, Fear of Death is Keeping Me Alive. Is that a sentiment mm-hmm. that can work in comedy, or is it always going to be kind of mocking and harder to reach the emotion of that feeling if you were to do it through, I don't know, sketch or drama in some way? Um, well, I, I think... Um I think that I, that sentiment that the fear of death is keeping me alive is a joke, essentially, you know, that's a, that does seem kind of like an old timey joke, um, an ironic way of looking, a paradoxical way of looking at why you live, why you're alive, right. you know, um, and, and there, and it can be treated that way in the song, but it's also a real feeling. Uh, I think death is a subject that we're obvious that as humans were consumed with and in our con and especially in on cinema but in tim and eric too there's constantly playing with the idea of death and um i didn't really know why i guess but i think um there there's a kind of this idea that we play with these dark ideas to like process them and 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 understand them and, and make them not as scary as they can tend to be. Um, so, you know, it, it, there's a, there's a fundamental absurdity to life because what awaits us is death. And, uh, if you don't, if you're not a particularly religious person or faith driven person, there's kind of a, a dark absurdity to the whole thing. Right. Um, so I think that's that that just naturally filters into all of uh, all this a lot of the stuff we do, whether it's music or comedy. Well, but I don't think drama works because you know then it just becomes like too too serious and does it it's not like handling it from a dramatic perspective uh, uh, get, treats it too seriously uh, treats it more 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 seriously than the subject deserves. But it's kind of the most serious subject <laughs> at the same time. That's what's absurd about it. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, do you have kind of an aversion to more serious art than as your personal way of expressing uh, a lot of this, like as opposed to comedy or music that can have that fun or even sometimes comedic element? I don't say I have an aversion. I, I almost prefer, from, from an entertainment perspective, I think, I prefer uh, like a good drama than uh, than what passes for comedies these days, you know, like um, just because I think it's it's easier to make a good <laughs> it's easier to make good drama than uh, good comedy, maybe. Um, but yeah, I mean, I don't that's it goes back to like the the uh, I don't want to be co- mired and and drowning in irony and detachment like i want to be able to enjoy uh real you know human experiences and uh um watch real human so i get you know i get wrapped up in in my stories like everybody else on on my tv you know um and find it a, a tremendous uh diversion from thinking about the absurdity of uh of the death that awaits us. It's great. You know, a lot of it's just nice, uh, nice ways to spend time. I like watching, you know, baseball for the same reason. So but we're getting into some deep, dark psychological <laughs> stuff here. Is that, well, that's, that's what public radio is at its best, right? Yeah. Uh, well, cause essentially what you're saying that is because the natural world actually is absurd. Absurdism is uh, a more honest way of expressing how we feel and how we live. Right. Yeah. I mean, not to, I mean, I think there's this quote from David Lynch that says, I don't understand. I just saw it. That's why I remember it is, I don't understand why people uh, insist on art making sense 
while at the same time they accept that the world doesn't make sense you know like um it's a better reflection of uh the real the actual world um when we present absurdity and uh but it's comforting and distracting and quite lovely to watch stories that present a world that makes sense or at least people that make sense and resolution and resolve I had this dumb idea and I'm sure I'll never do anything with it, but it was kind of the idea that I would send Nathan Fielder, which was like, I was watching this show about a hijack. It's called hijack. It's like a, it's like a thriller with Idris Elba and a plane gets hijacked and you know, you know what you're going to get. And that's why you watch it. Cause you're watching a show about a plane getting hijacked and how they're going to get out of it. And, and I was like, it would be interesting to watch a show where nothing happens you know, where it's like, like, but it's treated the same way as that show where, you know, it's literally a show about a flight from, you know, uh, San Francisco to Boston. And it's, there's a dramatic tension throughout the show of this plane, this flight, but you're really just watching a five hour, uh, flight, you know, (laughs) you're just like jumping around to different interactions and this, and the, the flight attendants coming down. Um, I would wa- I was thinking, I was like I wonder if I would watch that show if you're like yeah nothing's really happening but <laughs> it's fun to watch people act and it's fun to see you know what's what it's like inside of a plane and um you know like I don't know where that's going but you know there's something um kind of just diverting and re- and relaxing and enjoyable about just you know watching something you you understand and and i don't know can appreciate uh the craft of i don't know if i need to know what's going to happen to this hijacked plane you know what i mean <laughs> right well but i, I think at the same <laughs> time like a lot of slow cinema art house cinema has been trying to do something along those lines for you know a century really and yeah what, what you often find is people don't they really don't want to watch it because they need some kind of genre construct or it needs to be funny or something like that Right. And so this idea that I would want to do with Nathan, because I think he would think it was funny, is like presented as if it's a genre, but then nothing, the the, the good stuff never really ever happens. <laughs> <laughs> the plane lands safely and people get off and get their luggage. Sounds like the kind of thing Ebert, if he were still here, would again, not particularly appreciate. Oh, he would be very incensed by the whole thing. <laughs> Well, you, you've done some work in genre, you know, like bedtime stories plays with some of the horror tropes. And uh, I love your, your mm-hmm. part in Us. And quick aside, that noise you make in Us, that little roar noise, did you come up with that? Yeah, I think so. I think I went in there like very with an open mind and Jordan had an open mind and we just were like figuring it out and trying stuff. And he asked for some kind of animal guttural noise you know it was like you know i think in all these he's he has a lot of ideas and a lot of uh but he's also like i don't know like what do you think what would what would he do what would this thing be you know and i'm just like winging it you know i'm just <laughs> kind of trying to entertain him and and try stuff and i did made that sound and he was like yeah let's try that and uh yeah so yeah, it's it's seared into my brain that little sound um but uh, yeah, so like genre seems like something that you do play with occasionally to go in these more uh, dramatic genre conceits. And uh, I don't know, is that are you planning to continue to sort of experiment in those different directions? I know you've got the podcast, you've got comedy, you've got music. Uh, I don't know. Is, is there a next in, in the horizon or are you figuring out the current phase as it exists? Yeah, I think Eric and I, you know, we've we've started a couple movie ideas started a couple or at least that's what we want to do is we're going to say let's let's try to make another movie let's try to approach it differently than the last one and maybe ground it more make it more in a in a genre um you know everyone writes us and says we'd love to see you make a horror movie i'm not a big horror movie fan but i think we could make something special more closer to like you know the lynch mm-hmm. world uh ari aster world than than like a gore fest um so yeah i mean there's uh it, to be you know I, I like that i like making stuff and i like making stuff with eric and i like um uh 
trying to solve those problems. But um, we, we also like, you know, I'm at this place where I've made a lot of stuff. We've made a lot of stuff. And sometimes it's like good to have some time to separate from that, you know, just to like not rush into something. And so we're kind of like just not rushing into what the next thing we'll, we want to do is and let it kind of come to us organically, uh, which sounds a little bit like a, you know, procrastination excuse from doing work, but uh, we are chipping away at it. And, and, and then it'll just have to be like, all right, let's just do something, see what it is, if it's working or not. Cause you can overthink a lot of this stuff. And I think part of our early career was very much based on not overthinking and not trying to, you know, figure out what the perfect thing to do is and just going out and doing stuff and learning by doing. And so, um, yeah, I think we're still kind of like, I think this pandemic, the pandemic and the lockdown and everything really created, um, I mean, I think we're still like in the hangover from that, you know? And Mm -hmm. it's like, it's just hard to like figure out what, what, uh, you want to do and 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 really bear down and do it and um and hopefully that we're coming out of that now but i I don't know if i'm the only one that feels this way i think i'm not no no i think a lot of people feel that way (laughs) (laughs) well also it's tough to say you're procrastinating when you've got you know weekly show i know you're on tour and a million other things yeah yeah. i think you should leave whatever else um well so i don't want to perception the perception is i'm very busy the reality is i uh I, you know, I'm more Brian Wilson, uh, bed, bedridden in the seventies, uh, half the time, but, uh. <laughs> well, the, all right. The truth is here at the end of the episode and, uh, I'll, yeah. I don't want to take up too much of your, your bedridden time. So, uh, I will wrap things up here. Uh, just, I do want to say thank you for letting me pick your brain and I'm very excited to see your show at the Admiral in August. So thanks for talking to me. I'm today. so excited. I've never been, I've never, uh, played in Omaha or Nebraska. I've never, I think I've, I think I might not have ever been in Nebraska. This is big news considering it's, I'm such a Bruce Springsteen fan. It's true. I can't wait to find out what I'm supposed to eat in Omaha. Hey! Riverside Chance is a production of KIOS 91.5 FM, Omaha Public Radio. The show is produced and edited by Courtney Bierman. Our original music is written and performed by The Real Zebos, and our artwork is done by Ben Matukowicz. Remember, you can find the backlog of all of these conversations wherever you get podcasts. Subscribe today and please leave us a review. As always, thank you for listening. I'm Tom Noblock. To end today's show, here is Tim Heidegger's Fear of Death. I think I'm